glad to see you. I want you to know that no earthly endeavor gives me more joy than to preach the Word of God with my church family. Uh, it's, it's, it's so satisfying, and it is indeed the height of worship for me um, when we come together and we can look at God's Word together and sit under that Word, me included, uh, because it has the authority, not me. Any authority I have is merely inherited from the authority that comes from the Word of God. Um, and speaking of that, would you go ahead and turn in your copy of the Word of God to Luke chapter 2. Um, I wanted to look at this morning what is a very familiar, maybe the most popular passage of Scripture when you come to think about the birth of Christ, and really made most popular, I would argue, because of a little show that came out in the 50s called Merry Christmas, Charlie Brown. And if you like my family and you love that, if, if you forget to watch it one year like we did last year, your children let you know that wasn't cool. And so we have to watch it. But in, in that show, if you're familiar with it, we have a blanket-toting Linus who helps out a very confused Charlie Brown about what the meaning of Christmas is. And he merely reads the passage we're going to look at. That he recites it, actually. Uh, which, which is a good challenge for all of us. Uh, but he gives clarity to what the meaning of Christmas is in the midst of so many things that go on. And by merely reading that passage, it changes Charlie Brown's life. Thus the power of the Word of God. And I know that's, that's an animated show, I get it. But the reality is he is reading Scripture. And that's very important for us. So today when we come to this passage, beloved, there is so much there for us to consider it's been great over the past several weeks that, that uh, Pastor Jeff has been walking us through the prologue to the Gospel of John and helping us to consider what the incarnation not only means theologically, but what it means practically for us as we live day to day. And you can do this with every gospel. If you would go to the Gospel of Matthew, we would work through Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, which establishes his, for lack of a better word, credentials to act in the role of Messiah. For the people of God. He was from the right lineage. And we could go to the Gospel of Mark and look at, though there's no birth narrative in Mark, look at the reality that Jesus is our second Adam, which is very good news for us because the first Adam was in the God blessed garden and failed. And our second Adam was in the God cursed wilderness and won everything we needed. He accomplished what the first Adam let go. And so today we come to the Gospel of Luke. And it's, it's a birth announcement by and large. But there's so much to consider because of the way this takes place. And what I want us to see this morning, what we're going to work through, that I think Luke was very intentional in doing, was to see how the providence of God reveals the glory of God, which fuels the mission of God. That's what we see in these first 20 verses of Luke chapter 1. And it's staggering. The thing that's striking about the Gospel of Luke are the number of times we read about uh, spontaneous expressions of praise, just the number of songs and prophecies that come up considering the birth of Christ. I mean, if we were to go back to Luke chap chapter 1, we would have Elizabeth and her unborn baby, who we know to be John the Baptist, he leaps in her womb when Mary shows up, who is also with child, because of who Mary is carrying. And Elizabeth erupts in this praise, this song of joy. Then you have Mary's song, which we know maybe more popularly as the Magnificat, but 
It's this song of humility that she sings. At the, the fact that God has chosen her to bring into the world the Messiah. And then you have Zechariah's prophecy after the birth of John the Baptist. Here's a, a prophecy where he just simply uh, talks about the trust he has. That the Lord is bringing to pass all that he has promised. Which is huge for what we'll see today. And then what we look at today is, is the angels breaking into, just exploding into the night sky and singing and proclaiming what God has done that very hour, which is amazing. And then if we were to work past that, we would get to eight days after Jesus' birth when Mary and Joseph take him to the temple to be circumcised. There's an old man named Simeon there and a prophetess who's old named Anna. And when they see this child, they know. And they speak with great joy about what God has done in bringing this baby into the world. And it's a fact that is astounding, but it reminds us that when God bears his strong arm for the salvation of his people, what happens is the mouths of his people are open to release the praise of their hearts. This is what God does for us, and it elicits a response from us. So, as we look at this today, I want you to know that this is your story. It, it's, it's not a story about you. It's not a story about me. It's, it's a story for us. And it's amazing what happens. So if you would, read along with me. I'm not going to make you stand because this is a longer passage. We're going to read the first 20 verses of Luke chapter 2. Luke records these words for us. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And an angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for, be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord for us, beloved. What I want you to see first, before we jump into this, is how overtly gospel-centered this passage is. Because right in the middle, verse 10, we have a description of the angel that proclaims this to the shepherds that he has come to bring them good news, literally to gospelize them, which again assumes bad news. 
And, and Brother Jeff has, has discussed that over the past several weeks. For there to be really good news, there has to be really bad news. And so he's bringing these shepherds good, good news. So that being our focus, let's look at this. So again, I want to see how the providence of God reveals the glory of God, which fuels the mission of God in us. And so look at these first seven verses. Here's where we see the providence of God. Luke's specificity, his, his detail to names and places and who was doing what is very intentional because he wants us to see something. There's irony. There's great irony in these verses, as we'll see in just a moment. Because we come upon this story, and the Romans are, are occupying the land. The people are under Roman occupation, and our story picks up with the Romans doing what they did very well, taxing the people growing fat off of the people. That's why this decree was sent out for people to return to their ancestral lands to be registered so they could pay the proper amount of taxes. So what Luke wants us to understand using these political particulars is that the providence of God is over all of, all of history. And we see God here using Caesar Augustus to fulfill what he had predetermined would happen. So he moves us through, here's what I want you to see. He moves us through a consideration of providence to get us to a dirty, smelly manger. And that's very important, as we'll see in a moment. But I want to define, since I'm using this word providence a lot, and I will this morning, I want to define that simply for us this morning. When I say providence, what do I mean? Providence is God's good, glorious, and meticulous ordering of whatsoever shall come to pass. For his glory and our everlasting joy. And that's a difficult statement because it's evidenced even in my own life that I, that I fall short in acknowledging. I'm biased in my acknowledgement of the providence of God. And I get biased when difficult things happen. I acknowledge it when it's very easy to trace his hand in what's happening in my life or in my family's life. But when it's harder to see... When a frowning providence hides a smiling face, that's when it gets difficult. So, and we'll see what I mean in just a moment. But Paul was, you know, I'm going to refer to Paul several times through this message because he, in his writings, grabs onto these concepts over and over again. So when you think of the issue of providence, think of Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. And Paul, speaking about Christ coming into the world, said this, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And Paul doesn't mean God stood around waiting for things to unfold the way they did. What Paul is getting at is that when the fullness of time had come, in other words, when God had so ordered things as he desired, he sent Christ into the world. That's very important. So with that in mind, we'll look at these verses. Now, I mentioned that this had a lot of irony in it, and it does, because we're introduced to somebody right off the bat it's the reigning Caesar at that time. And this was Caesar Octavius. He's the one who consolidated the power of the Romans. As we, when we think of it, it's, he's the guy that did it. As a matter of fact, he is the first Caesar to take on the title emperor. And he had achieved godlike status among the people. So you're starting to see the irony here. So the fact that he went by Caesar Augustus, which means the splendid one, tells you what he thought of himself. So what does he do? Well, he starts enacting his own providence, doesn't he? He sends out a decree for people to do what he says. Go to your homeland. Be registered. And people do it. But the irony here is, is that the splendid one 
had decreed in eternity past that he would do this and the people would get to where they needed to be as he sent Christ into the world. There's the irony. In Caesar's mind, he's enacting this for a tax purpose so he can continue to build his kingdom. But God was using it and had ordained it for something much, much greater. So when you look at verses 2 through 4, that becomes very clear. So Joseph heads to Bethlehem where the prophet Samuel found a young boy centuries earlier named David and anointed him king. So this was David's city, as Luke makes clear to us, because Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. Now, why is this important? Why is Bethlehem, which was known to be a very small, insignificant town, why is it important in this? Because Luke's readers would have understood that something very significant was said about this insignificant place by the prophet Micah. You know this verse well, probably. Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, very insignificant, from you shall come forth to me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origins is from old, from ancient of days. So Micah was making the point, the, the Lord was making the point through the mouth of Micah, that this ruler is not just somebody who has the right lineage. This is one who is grounded in eternity. One will come from this place who will be the ruler in Israel. So look at verse 5. To be, Joseph leaves, goes to the, the city of David, because he's of the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now we understand this ruler that Micah is speaking of is in the womb of a young girl named Mary. As she's gone to Bethlehem. So everything is set. She accompanies him on this journey and everything is set for God's plan to find its fulfillment. Now, Mary's situation has been explained to the readers of this gospel back in chapter 1. We understand that she is conceived by the Holy Spirit and is set to deliver the promised Messiah who will sit on David's throne to rule forever. So this is what's happening beneath the surface as Caesar thinks he's in control of what's taking place. So verse 6 Think about what type of trip this had to have been for Mary. Um, because when she arrives, she's ready to go. And ladies, I hear that's not a, a fun thing, necessarily. I know it yields great joy, uh, but getting there is difficult. So she arrives here and is ready to give birth. And so in verse 7 tells us that you know, they had trouble finding a place to stay. Now, again, think about what are we talking about here? The providence of God in the big picture, but also in the small, in the minutia. So keep that in mind as we think about Mary and Joseph. So they can't find a place to stay, so they find shelter in an animal keep, and they use a feeding trough, which a lot of people believe was a hole dug in the ground, not even a wooden feeding trough. But that's where they will place the child. They use that as a cradle. And there's another irony here. Because Luke tells us here that she gave birth to her firstborn son. Now, Luke is using that as a designation of birth order. This is quite literally the first child Mary will bear. But the reality is what Paul said in Colossians 1.15. This one that she has given birth to is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, Paul is using that term as a designation of supremacy, of position. He is above all. 
So you catch that irony there as well. So the paradox is, is that this is royalty stooping to humility, the timeless one stepping into time, and the majestic one that is clothing himself in flesh, and his mother wraps him in rags, essentially. And as we think of the timing of the gospel and God's providence, remember, you know, Rome has consolidated power. You've heard this before. There are roads that lead to Rome from this little outpost. There's a very common language now that is spoken, which is an excellent vehicle for the gospel. So what happens in this tiny little town affects the very center of the world, quite literally, and to an even greater expanse spiritually, as we are witness of this very day. So this is what's happening. But let's consider for a moment. I, I wanted you to consider providence on the ground. I mean, we see the big picture. God is moving all the pieces He's using Caesar, who thinks he's in control, to accomplish his will. But think about the providence of God on the ground with Mary and Joseph. Think about what they have been through and what they're getting ready to experience. So think of it this way. Mary is actually under the weight of something she had spoken back in chapter 1 and verse 38. When she was visited by the angel and told that she would bear a child, this is what she said. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. But what does that mean? I'm sure she didn't know everything it meant in that moment, but here's what panned out for her. It meant traveling nearly 100 miles, either on foot or by donkey. Either one, it's probably a combination of both, does not sound fun. During the later stages of pregnancy. It meant the anxiety of having labor pains in a strange city with only her husband there. And I can tell you from having been in Joseph's shoes and, and in the sense that I've been with my wife when she's ready to deliver, I was zero help. And I was told that, actually. Get away from me. Let the nurses and the doctors who know what they're doing take care of them. So that's part of it. It meant suffering her child's messy entrance into the world. It meant wiping him clean, tearing clothes to bundle him, and praying that he would live. As we romanticize this scene, but husbands, you, you know, fathers, you know that this is a war zone. It's bloody and loud, and it's, it's messy. So Pastor Kent Hughes described it this way, and I love this, for us to think about what this was like as we think about this providence. He said, sweat and pain and blood and cries as Mary reached up to heaven for help. The earth was cold and hard. The smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and acrid straw made a contemptible bouquet. Joseph's trembling carpenter's hands, clumsy with fear, grasped God's son, slippery with blood. The baby's limbs waving helplessly as if falling through space his face grimacing as he gasped in the cold and his cry pierced the night. It wasn't a silent night. It was a very loud, messy, frantic night. And here's what I want us to see in this, guys. This, you know, this is God's providence. Is this how Mary would have wanted in her, in her imagination to have her firstborn child? I don't think so. I mean, I realize that's a very different culture. And even the best of circumstances for her would be far less than, than what we've seen and been able to enjoy probably. But, but this was radical. 
She's by herself. She's in a smelly stable. There's nothing she can do for her child but pray that he lives. And Joseph, who's not medically trained, is delivering this baby. And so my question is this. I mean, this is why I said I sometimes get biased when I consider God's providence. But this is God's providence for them. And so is God God in feast only or is he also God of the famine? Is it just the good things that we rejoice in and recognize his hand in? Or is it the stuff that's very messy that we did not expect, that did not work out the way we planned it, that we could legitimately say maybe this isn't how it's supposed to be, but sin has entered the world and this is what happens, but God is good. And he is moving on my behalf. That's the providence of God. But here's what it does. Look at the next set of verses here. Verses 8 through 14. So the purpose of the gospel is to reveal the glory of God. And this is what the angel actually says it does. So here's the, the humdrum of providence. So, I mean, it's exciting where Mary and Joseph are. There's a lot going on. But here we find shepherds just doing what shepherds do on any normal night out on the outskirts of the city watching over smelly, stubborn sheep. But something happens to them. And there is great implication for us that they are the ones that receive the message that the angels give. Because it answers the question, who is the gospel for? Who is the gospel for? Now, I said this is our story, not about us, but for us. And in a sense, it's about us when we get to the shepherds, because there we are. Because these are not the top of the rung people. And that's not saying anything about anybody in here. It's describing our state as broken human beings who are affected by sin. So sometimes we answer the question about who the gospel is for inadvertently by Living a life that makes it seem like it's only for Sunday mornings or it's only for the, the hallowed halls of seminaries or it's only for domed cathedrals or it's only for certain times. But the gospel is for people at all times. It's always had that purpose. So there's great theological significance on the fact that the angels give the message to someone here. Shepherds. Look in verse 8. Why is this important? Shepherds by this time have enjoyed a long reputation of being despicable. Again, this, this sort of fights against the romanticization we've done, if that's a word, uh, to this scene. But shepherds were not seen as people that were good or wanted to be hung out with. They were smelly. They had a very low-level job. Even in Genesis 46, we want to go back that far, when Joseph approaches Pharaoh... And he's made the deal to bring his family so that they would survive the famine to get them down into Egypt. He tells Pharaoh, look, my father and brother are shepherds. Let them live in Goshen. They don't have to come in here. Just let them stay in Goshen. And there's a footnote there that, that Moses gives us in the writing of Genesis that says, for the Egyptians saw shepherds as an abomination. And that reputation carried on. They just weren't seen as top of the rung. So I plugged myself in there because of my sin. When the angel announces the gospel to these shepherds, he's announcing it to someone like me and someone like you, if you allow me to say that. Not because of who you are socially or in any other strata, but because of who you are as a human being. 
ravaged by sin. It's the common condition we have. So basically shepherds were second class only to lepers. It's fair to say that. So yeah, this is the group to who these events unfold. Look in verse 9. So disturbing this cool Judean night air is an angel of the Lord. And he has an announcement for the lowest of people. And they're rightly terrified. But he immediately deals with that, doesn't he? In verse 10, which I said is our central verse, we have this. Fear not or do not be afraid. I mean, that was his response. And the, the first thing the angel says is, that's not the right response. I get it, but I'm here for a good, good reason. So do not be afraid. I've come to gospelize you. That is to tell you good news that is for you. So look at the announcement here. Look at its nature. He says it's good news. This is a good announcement. It is, again, it assumes the, assumes the bad news. Look at its effect. Great joy. Great joy, which assumes that that's something we need. That joy isn't always up here. And it's not. But the gospel does not change. And its audience is all the people. Now, their, their song that they're going to sing in just a moment will explain what they mean. Good news of great joy for all the people. And here's where it gets real and personal. Look in verse 11. It's immediacy. He says, this day, today, right now, a Savior has been, what? Born. It's done. It's a certainty. He is here. So all this release of all this anticipation of Advent, which we've celebrated these past several weeks, it's come. He's here, but not in a way people would have expected not in the person they would have expected, not in the circumstances they would have expected, not in the place they would have expected. Again, so let that inform your understanding of God's providence. And its subject is this child. This is who the story's about. It's for us, but it's about this one that the angels say is wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger, who is Savior, Christ, and Lord. Now, Think of the magnitude of that pronouncement. Because it's likely these shepherds were anticipating this. Not, not like this, but they were waiting with the rest of the people for Who's the one who will finally sit on the throne? Who will actually rule and reign over us by design as it's supposed to have been from the beginning? So they're waiting. And so the, the angel says he's here. So this is the one who will proclaim in the temple... In a few short years, Isaiah 61.1. So if it's shepherds that hear it, listen to what Jesus says when he's in the temple. When he starts his ministry, he quotes this verse because he grabs the scroll of Isaiah and reads this. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because, of the, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. There it is. That's a Hebrew expression of gospel. Good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim, proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now think about those descriptors for a second. And see if you don't find yourself in there somewhere. Maybe not all the time. But is this a fair assessment? Poor, brokenhearted, captive, bound. And so, and we're not talking necessarily physically in these things, but... The constitution of who you are and what you struggle with and what you deal with. 
Is it fair to say of yourself? It is for me, I know. Poor, brokenhearted, captive, and bound. This is what sin does. And so Jesus is saying, I've come to undo this. And here's what I want you to see in the shepherd's message. In verse 12, the angel says, this is for you. Listen to Paul here again. Because he, again, he picks up on this truth. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31, this is what he says. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring nothing to the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And for our purposes today, we would say, let the one who boasts, boast in this child. That's the good news. That's the story for us. Now, look in verse 12. Let, let this take your breath. Consider the majesty of the Son in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit for eternity, now shivering, wrapped in coarse cloth, lying on hay in the stench of a stable. This, this is the humiliation of the incarnation. And Paul again, Philippians 2, says this. Speaking of Christ, he said, Who, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So this, this child, this Savior, Christ, Lord, appeared as nothing, servant, likeness of a broken human so again just not like we would expect it and then verse 13 and 14 my mind and my mouth struggle to to imagine and express to you this morning how significant this is uh, for for your benefit and my benefit so look at this and suddenly there was with the angel so with the one a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So this eruption of spontaneous praise from those creatures whom this little baby made by the breath of his mouth and the will of his command. This angelic army breaking the silence with harmony and light and all of these things that happen as he lays there helpless, hungry, cold. And they announced this very different scene as an absolute victory and glory to God in the highest. This is what glory looks like. And that's exactly the opposite of what I think it looks like. You know, we, you know, we see things and say, oh, it's beautiful. That's glorious. Look at those mountains. And they are because they're whispers of God's glory. But to look at this, to smell that smell, to see that poor, tired, exhausted young girl and a very scared father and say, glory to God. That's different. 
that takes a different perspective. It's a perspective that I like lack very often. It's, you know, and this isn't, you know, in keeping with Old Testament, you know, law, this isn't two or three witnesses. This is thousands of angels proclaiming this as glory to God. Glory to God in the highest and peace among men with whom he is pleased or upon whom his grace or favor rests. And this is why Charles Wesley penned, Hark now, hear the angels sing. You ever stop to think about what he means by that? Because we sing it as a, as a melodic line. I'm not going to sing it for you, but you got it in your mind right now. But he's saying in common, more up-to-date language, listen. The angels are singing the glory of the gospel. That's all he's saying. So, and it's, this is, why is this significant to the shepherds when he says, and peace on earth among those with whom he's pleased? Because this is not the Pax Romana. This is what was promised them over and over again. This is what was promised to all. You know, peace meant you do what Rome says. You pay Rome's taxes. You let Rome protect you. And so this is significant because this is not what this is. Because this isn't the peace Jesus came to bring, is it? This isn't even peace between men, though that is good. We need to fight for that. But Jesus said this in Matthew 10. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. How does that fit with this? And he's simply saying the government is not your savior. To them it was Rome is not your savior. Regardless of what Rome does or any government does, that falls under the providence of God. And it will work out for your joy in the everlasting glory of the Father. That will take place. That is the promise of the gospel. Because, you know, the seasonal song that says, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me, yet that's great, but that's not, that peace can't happen without this peace first, which is between God and man. When the angels say, peace, why do they say it this way? Peace among those with whom he is what? Please, or literally, on whom his grace rests. That is peace between God and his people. And so the peace we long for between one another cannot take place without this peace being enacted. That's what they're getting at. So Colossians 1.20. Think about this. Paul said, and through him, that is Christ, he reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Again, glory. Doesn't look like glory, does it? It's bloody, but it's glorious. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So God receiving glory to bring peace between himself and sinful men. So this is the providence of God revealing the glory of God. And it looks very different than maybe we assume it does sometimes. So what's the last thing I said there? That revelation of glory then fuels the mission of God. Look in verses 15 through 20. So what do we do? Yeah, here's the response to the gospel, the mission of God. So notice in all the shepherds, in all, everything they do that's described for us by Luke, it is evident in their actions that it is based solely on what has been revealed to them. So their life all of a sudden starts to take shape because of what they now know. They are different people from this point forward. So look at this, verse 15, first, what do they say? Let us go. 
When the Lord makes known to you the truth and beauty of the gospel, your immediate reaction is to redirect the course of your life that you might live in such a way as to continually seek and look upon this great gospel. Well, they, they say, let us go see this thing. They, just, they didn't say immediately, let's go tell everybody what the angels told us. The first thing they did is said, I want to see this baby. I want to see this thing that the, the angel said is glorious. And that is good news for us. So that's where they go. They go to worship the Savior. They, this is important. They press in to see the glory of God before they do anything else. That's what's on their minds and in their hearts. Then look at verse 17, the second thing they do. Then they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. It was then that when they go there and people are, are around, because remember, everybody had traveled there who had some ancestral link to that place. So it's crowded. They couldn't even find a place in the end. So when they go and they see this child, then they start telling everybody what they had been told about this child. So the NIV says they, they spread the word, which, you know, may not be linguistically accurate, but it's, it gets to the point, doesn't it? That's what they're doing. We could probably rightfully argue, argue that these guys were the first evangelists, even though maybe they didn't quite understand everything yet. But they were telling everyone the good news that they had heard. So mission begins with drawing near before going out. Let that sing in for a moment. Before going out, you must draw near. See and savor and bask in the glory of God. Then you are well equipped to tell everybody about that glory. And look at the responses they got. And this is, you know, this is typical. There's a general response to them telling everyone. Um, it says, the people wonder at the things which were told them. You know, you can imagine that as something like, huh, Wow. That's interesting. Yeah, haven't you ever got that response before when you're, you know, oh, good for you. That's sort of the feel here. They're wondering about it because this is big news and this is a big deal. Something out of the ordinary has happened here. And if they wonder about it. But then you get a deeper response from none other than this young girl, Mary, who's just given birth to this child. And what we're told here is that Mary treasures and ponders all these things in her heart. So she takes everything she's hearing now, Mary had a visit from an angel regarding this child, didn't she? Yes. As did Joseph. When he was going to do a noble thing and not divorce her publicly, but quietly set her aside because he thought maybe she's been unfaithful. And the angel said, no, 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 no. That's not what's happened here. And so they both had an inside track to what had just happened. But still, Mary hears everything that the angels have said. See, we sometimes get the, the sense that Mary knew exactly the full scope of what had just happened and what was going to happen. I would argue that she did not. She knew a lot, but listen to this. All of this new, it's new and amazing to this young girl, and she will spend years piecing together what this means. Remember, why do I say that? She will at one point, along with his siblings, oppose him and try to pull him out of the crowd, saying he's lost his mind. Mark 3.21. So there's an ebb and flow to what she understands and what's going to take place. So that's why she's treasuring these things. She's human. I mean, there's a lot happening here, right? So she's piecing together all that's taking place and sometimes just trying to grasp the immensity of what God is doing in your life takes a, time, a long time to grasp. You know as well as I do that most times it's with reverse 2020 vision 
that we go, ah, there it is. And I wouldn't change it. It was hard, it was difficult, it was smelly, it was bloody, all that, but I wouldn't change it. Because I see the hand of God in it now. That's God's grace to allow us to be able to do that. But don't be discouraged because you can't figure it out in the moment. Think of all those songs and those prophecies from early in Luke of trust and joy and humility. And draw on that. So then the third thing they, they did. So they've gone to see. They've shared what they know, what they've heard and seen. And then it said in verse 20, the shepherds went back. That simple little phrase there, the shepherds returned, is so important for us. Because the lives of these outcasts and despised men were forever altered by this child they had just seen. And so it's an issue of a complete change of life. But here's the important thing I want you to see this morning. Their occupation did not change, but how they lived and carried out that occupation did. That's very important. Okay. They went back to their previous occupations, not to seminary. And, you know, because that's what they were called to do. If you're called to seminary, do it. But don't think that an encounter with the risen Christ automatically means you have to become something you're not. God could have you by his providence, and he does, wink, wink, right where you are, to take this new life into that context. So you are where you are, and he has wired you to be who you be. And the gospel and the grace of God will radically change that for his glory and your joy. But you go to where you are, and you faithfully trust and follow the Lord. And he may call you. You never know. But you let him do that calling. Because the point is not a change in what they did, but a change in who they were. That's the point. The evidence that you belong to Christ, that you've experienced the joy of the gospel that these angels announced is it's a change in who you are, not what you do. There may be a change in what you do, depending on what you've done. It gets confusing, doesn't it? But you get the point. The change in who you are comes first. Every other change drives from that. When he changes you, that's when the tentacles start to go out. The gospel changes you. And it's good news that it changes you. Because the bad news is we were at war with God before the good news came. But he's brought peace. Peace between us and him. So think about this as we close this morning. Think about just these little steps. First of all, they heard. Put yourself in their shoes. and Bring it into your life. They heard the gospel. They heard and understood, though it was different than they imagined, that God had done something through this little family, bringing his son into the world to bring peace between him and those who had been at war with him and to radically change all of history. They believed. I mean, you think about being in their shoes. <clears throat> Excuse me. You know, what's, what's not to believe when the sky cracks open and thousands of angels come and start singing in front of you, right? But it changed them. And I'm telling you, it's no less of a miracle Understand me. It's no less of a miracle, no less of a glorious miracle for God to turn on the light in you and you believe the gospel. Because that scene takes place in your heart before you believe the gospel. It cracks open and you see the glory of God and what he's doing in Jesus. And as a result, they investigated. 
Not that they were doubting. They said, let's go see. I want to live this out. And then they shared. This news is too good to not let people know. And they celebrated. How did they celebrate? By going back to what they did, rejoicing. Because now the issue is that they are different people. But they're doing what they did before. They rejoiced in the gospel. So, just like Linus, you know the meaning of Christmas. Help those who are confused and hurt and hurting and don't understand what this is all about. And it's not about all the good things we can get into around Christmas. It's about this. It's about God's providence that doesn't look like we expect it to. And sometimes it hurts. Brian used to tell me, that's a difficult providence. And I get it. But it's no less providence, which means it's no less good, which means it no less will result in God's glory and my joy for all eternity in Jesus. Because I'm a broken, stinky shepherd. And so are you. So take what they did and do likewise. I'm going to say it again just so you you get the flow of this message. Because this is what I want you to hang on to. The providence of God. And I want you to see your life every day, every moment. As part of that fabric of the providence of God. Because it is. Whether you acknowledge it or not, it is. The difficulties and the joys. The tragedies and the joys. Beloved, I'll be, I'll be the first to cry with you and confess that I do not understand difficult providence. I don't. But I hope in it. I hope that the tragedies have meaning. Because they do. I hope that the most difficult things that I've ever experienced or heard of other people experiencing that I can't wrap my mind around are not something that flicked out of God's control, but that he actually fashioned somehow for his glory and our good. And that's hard to hear. But where else is hope? Where else do we have the hope that that will be made right? And it will have its good purpose in our life eventually. But that reveals the glory of God in the gospel. You might say, so are you saying that all of God's providence is about this issue? Him revealing his glory that he might send people out on mission that they would see his glory and tell others? Yes, yes, that's it. I probably could have said that and been done. But that's it. So the glory of God, and it fuels the mission of God. So it, and you, if you are in Christ, you are on mission. You are a part of God's mission. There's no getting around that. So if you feel worn down, if you feel lost in what that mission should look like in your life, if it's just difficult, then let this flowchart guide you. The providence of God in your life reveals his glory to you, and that should fuel your mission. The rest is crossing T's and dotting I's. So my prayer is that we, not just you, but we, me, will grab hold of this truth and that it shapes this new year we're heading into. And it so shapes that new year that, well, what do you know? It's shaped my entire life. The rest of the days the Lord has graciously deemed to give me in his providence, they'll be used for him in this gospel. Would you pray with me?
Father, we thank you this morning for the truth and beauty of your word. That though we sometimes convolute things and, and make a consideration of what's taking place in our lives and your good providential hand upon us, very difficult. The reality is, is that you are working by your power to mold us and shape us, to reveal your glory to us, that we would be sent out and take part in the mission you've called us to. So, Father, we pray that you would write this passage on our hearts and minds. May it shape us this day, this coming week, this coming year, and the rest of our lives. May we have new eyes to see the providence you so gloriously work out for our benefit to show us who you are. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.